Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to Chapter 3 of Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. My name is Doug Taylor, and I appreciate the fact that you're with me here tonight. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to, uh, to ask if there are any questions left over from last week. And if so, go ahead and type them in the box. Also, if you have a microphone hooked up to your computer, please feel free to click the little microphone icon down in the lower left corner of your screen, and it will indicate to me that you want to say something, and I'll release the microphone, then you can speak. And once you're done, please click that button again, and that releases the microphone uh, so that I can get access back to it. Um, what I would like to do is briefly go through a review of what we did uh, last week. We found that review is a very important tool that we can use. And one of the things that we covered in our class last week was a proof of the revelation of Mount Sinai. And we did that by looking at the claim that the Torah makes that 600,000 men, by the time you had women and children, you're really up to you know, probably more than 2 million people, heard uh, God's voice at Mount Sinai. And we went through a process of uh, looking at that to say, well, Either that's true or it's not. And if it's not true, but that story is with us right now uh, and accepted by the Jewish people, then someone had to have introduced that story at some point in history. And we showed that it essentially is impossible to fake the introduction either at the time it occurred or the later point in time of an event that would uh, purport to claim that two million, million people heard God's voice. Uh, because we talked about the issues of conspiracies, and that you can have a conspiracy when you have one or two or maybe three people or a very small number, but when you've got as many as two million, it's virtually impossible to keep a conspiracy a secret, and also to get people to go along with agreeing with something that actually did not happen to them. We then talked about the fact that there is a written and an oral Torah, and we gave some proofs uh, as to why that's true. Uh, and we also looked into some examples of the depth of the Torah. We went through uh, several um, examples from the Torah itself uh, and looked at the kinds of things that we uh, can find by digging deeply into the text and seeing what's actually there. And Pat, I see you ask a question. Did the group include the mixed multitude that left with them, or was it just the Hebrews? Uh, that is a great question, and I do not know the answer off the top of my head. Uh, I would have to research that one and see if the 600,000 that is referred to is just Jewish men or if it was 600,000 men, period. My recollection is that it's men, period, so that the 2 million would probably include that mixed multitude, uh, but would need to double-check the text and the commentators to be sure on that. Uh, any any other questions on this? Uh, okay, Pat, and I see that you did read that uh, the mixed multitude uh, wasn't converted, and so that that included them. And in fact, if they were converts, that would have included them, because it's my understanding that um, convert is treated by the Torah every much, uh, every bit as much uh, of a Jew as a uh, person who's born Jewish. We also then looked last week at the seven Noahide laws just briefly. Uh, we pointed out that the laws really consist of six prohibitions, or six negatives, and one positive, the six being prohibitions against idolatry, blasphemy, murder, theft, certain sexual relations, and eating the limb of a living animal, and that there is a positive commandment to establish courts of law. We also discussed that those aren't really specific laws per se, but that they are, in fact, uh, categories of laws, and that within those there are much more specific commandments. Uh, for example, the prohibition against certain sexual relations, well, that begs the question, which sexual relations? And so we have to get into the specifics uh, of what would be allowed and what would not be allowed. And we'll discuss that, uh, God willing, in a uh, later course, or in a, in a later session of this course. Uh, we also talked uh, about the source of those laws being uh, what we call the oral law, as opposed to the written law or the oral Torah, as opposed to the written Torah, uh, and that those 
Um, again, the Seminole High Laws encompass quite a number of individual commandments. We also talked about the system of Torah law, which is a very precise uh, system called halacha, very math, almost mathematical in nature, or uh, it has that type of precision. <clears throat> and so you'll find sometimes that uh, the sages in the Talmud will debate uh, individual points at a very fine level, not necessarily because perhaps they're worried about an individual case, but by going down to that level and getting very, very precise, you begin to understand the methodology of reasoning, uh, how to make correct uh, deductions and how to make correct conclusions, uh, and it becomes the study itself becomes part of the learning. Uh, so it's a, a very helpful and uh, I find to be a very exciting uh, study to get into. So any questions on any of that before we move on to our topic for this week? Okay. <clears throat> now, pause for just a second, Pat, because I see that you're like you're typing something. Uh, what about the verse in Genesis? And I am not recalling an outstanding question there, but my memory is also not perfect, so if you can remind me about that, uh, that would help. Where Hashem tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Still not sure what the question is. Ah, is that a commandment? Very good question. Is the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, does that devolve upon... Uh, the Noahides. My understanding is that it does not. It is a commandment given to the Jewish people. Now, that commandment is in Genesis, and what happens is that <clears throat> the seven Noahide laws, as I understand it, were in effect uh, during the period that led up to the flood, uh, and uh, then after that there was uh, uh, a, a modification of those uh, or a modification in the sense that uh, you may notice that there were certain restrictions around eating meat uh, in uh, the days before the flood. Uh, in the days after the flood, Noah was given the, uh, the freedom to kill meat in order to eat it. That freedom did not exist prior to the flood. But the entire law and everything around it was restated at Mount Sinai. And it's my understanding that the commandment to be fruitful and multiply uh, does not directly devolve upon the Noahides so that we are not halakhically required, if you will, to uh, go have children. Uh, so uh, that's my understanding on that one. There is a requirement, as I understand it, for the Jewish people uh, to have children, and there are, I think, uh, a number of things around that, but that, that does not necessarily... Uh, devolve upon the Noahides. And you're right, Pat, that commandment also says, says that man is to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish and the birds uh, and all the various living creatures. Okay, uh, unless there's a further question on that one, let me... Uh, <clears throat> and that's true, Pat, that was told to them before uh, there was a Jewish nation. Uh, and I would have to delve into that one a little further to, um, let me make a note to look into that, uh, but it's my understanding that that particular commandment to uh, be fruitful was um, not given to, after the flood, to Noah as a specific commandment that has a halakhic obligation uh, tied to it, uh, but that the uh, at the time when the Torah was uh, given in Mount Sinai, the seven Noahide laws were, uh, I guess, encoded in the, uh, in the oral law. <clears throat> it's my understanding that everything in terms of going back to the source from which we follow halacha goes from Sinai forward. 
and that we don't go back to what existed uh, before that time. And I'll be happy to, uh, to check on that and uh, verify that. And I'll just make myself a note if you'll bear with me. Increase uh, on my commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Okay. And let me see if I can find an answer uh, to that question, Pat, on why. Okay. Uh, what I would like to do is cover some interesting tools tonight, or the beginning of them. It will probably take us two nights of class to do that. Uh, but as we embark on this journey about Torah, we want to have some tools uh, for the journey. And these are tools that I learned and distilled over years of studying with uh, some very sharp rabbinic scholars. Uh, I was asked a number of years ago to give a talk about uh, about Torah, and I went back through all of my notes and tried to distill down, okay, what have I learned from, from studying with these gentlemen over the past umpteen years? And there were a lot of things that hit the cutting room floor, but I noticed that there were some very common themes that came out, and those themes uh, are the ones that I'd like to share with you. They are very applicable in our Torah learning together. They're applicable if you're involved in business. They're applicable in analysis of your personal life, uh, just about everywhere that I've turned, these tools have uh, proven to be helpful. And the very first one that I'd like to share with you is to take you back to, in, in my personal history, to the time when I first had an opportunity to have a class with a rabbi. Uh, and Rabbi Morton Moskowitz, uh, who lives in Seattle and uh, is the Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Northwest Yeshiva High School in Mercer Island in Washington, agreed to work with me on a weekly basis. And he said, I'll teach you Jewish philosophy. And he said, I'll teach you through the study of the book of Proverbs. And he said, we'll start with chapter 10. So I thought, all right, that's fine. Uh, and he said, I'll give you an hour a week. <clears throat> so I wanted to be a very dutiful student, and I... Uh, read ahead all of chapter 10 for the first class, and just in case we got done with all of chapter 10, uh, I read all of chapter 11 as well, figuring that I'd be fully prepared for uh, however much ground we might cover. And I got into the class, and it went like this. It was just Rabbi Moskowitz and me, and he said, okay, Proverbs chapter 10. Now, he had the original Hebrew, so he's translating, and I had an English translation. And so he begins translating. <clears throat> it says, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, reads, The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. And I sat there thinking, yeah, okay, well, that's pretty straightforward. And he stopped. And he said, what are the questions? And I stared at him. And I did not have the foggiest idea what he was asking. I said, what do you mean, what are the questions? He said, what are the questions? Like, the first words in this verse are the Proverbs of Solomon, right? Right. And he said, this is the beginning of the 10th chapter, right? Right. And the Proverbs of Solomon is the title of the book, right? Right. He said, When's the last time you ever read a book where the author put the title of the book at the beginning of the 10th chapter? He said, what are those words doing there? Why does that verse start with the Proverbs of Solomon? And I just sat there like an, like an errant kid because I realized I just completely missed that point. He said, it says a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. He said, why doesn't it say a wise son makes a glad mother, but a foolish son is the grief of his father? In fact, why not just a wise son makes glad parents, but a foolish son makes grievous parents? Why that particular juxtaposition in the verse? That was the second thing that I had missed completely. And then he said, and he's still writing, you know, reciting the questions. He says, it says a wise son. 
He says, what's wise? And in essence, he said, can you define wise in 25 words or less without using any synonym of wise, smart, uh, clever, whatever, so that the definition is absolutely clear? And that was the beginning of my introduction to what I consider to be probably the most powerful tool in Torah learning, and that is that we have to ask questions. We absolutely have to ask questions. Asking questions is the building block of learning, and I realized that I wasn't doing it. Now, you might think, well, gee, you know, do I need to get online and sit through a class and have somebody tell me I need to ask questions? I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, let's find out. What I'd like you to do is think about every class you have attended since, say, high school, including high school. So high school classes, college classes, community college classes, night classes, uh, Sunday school classes, church services, luncheon seminars, um, any kind of class that you've attended. And generally, I would suggest that probably, on average, you've got about 30 students in a room, and you've got one person up at the front making some kind of a demonstration or giving some kind of a lecture. Now, if you take in your own mind all those classes that you've attended, that you sat through, and you kind of compress them down into an average, if you had an average class of 30 students in your experience, based on what you've seen, on average, how many of those 30 students will ask questions? I'd be interested for you to type in your responses. In your experience, on average, of the classes you attend, out of an average of 30 students, how many would ask questions? Anybody want to volunteer an answer? Okay, thank you, Pat. Maybe one. And I've asked this question to a lot of different audiences. And the average answer that I get from the audiences is two. And with possibly only one exception, I've never had an audience articulate an answer greater than five. Now, does that mean that in those classes, all the information presented was so clear that there weren't any questions to ask? I don't think so. And the reason for that is that I would suggest to you that asking questions is contrary to the American pattern of learning. We are taught, generally speaking, to come in to the classroom, sit down, open up our notebook, take notes, and be quiet. Now, you might get away with, you know, one question or two questions or uh, whatever it might be, but try asking five or ten or 20 questions, and you may be labeled as, as disruptive or someone who has attention deficit disorder who needs Ritalin or something along that line because we do not encourage that kind of thing. And Pat, you're absolutely right. In certain circumstances, you'd be asked to leave or told to leave. Uh, can you imagine, for those of you that have attended a church service, if in the middle of the pastor's sermon, you stood up and said, excuse me, but uh, you just made a statement that contradicts something that you said uh, 10 minutes ago. Could you please explain that contradiction? I mean, people would look at you like you had 16 heads. And yet, questions are the key to us understanding an idea. Uh, I mean, if you think about trying to learn um, karate or ballet or ice skating, Imagine trying to learn those by having someone sit down and tell you about it for two hours. Do you think that you'd be able to get out on the ice skates uh, and, and do a double axle? Probably not, because what you'd have to do is you would have to go get some skates on, get out to an ice rink, 
lace them up, step out on the ice, push off, fall down probably, get up, fall down again, and keep doing it until you practice and practice and practice and practice. And then you begin to get good at it. And it's the same with it's karate or ballet or learning how to weld pipes together or any skill that we want to develop, we have to do it uh, by practice. And the, the skill in the area of ideas that we need to work on is the skill of being able to ask questions. And we need to ask every question until we completely understand an idea. And if we don't understand the idea, then it's okay for us to keep asking questions until we do, because that is how we're going to learn that. Um, and in fact, interestingly, we have to ask questions right up to and including questioning authority. Uh, and you could say that questioning authority is the beginning of investigation. And that might be questioning right up to and including questioning God. Because if we don't understand something, how can we operate? Uh, we have to be able to, uh, uh, to understand as we go along. Now, there are a couple of um, different motives that you can use for a question. You can use a question as a tool. You can also use it as a weapon. And I'm sure you've experienced certain uh, debates, uh, possibly political uh, type of things, or when one person is, whose sole purpose is to shut down another person, they can do it with questions. The questions aren't designed to really elicit true knowledge. They're designed to uh, shut another person down. And there's a time and a place for using questions in both ways. But it's very important uh, that we know which. Now, what's also interesting is that authorities are often afraid of questions. So we are taught, either explicitly or implicitly, <clears throat> that questioning is a weapon and that we're taught not to use it. In fact, these days, to question something is often considered an attack. So imagine, if, again, if you stood up in that, in that search service, to question the pastor would probably be considered in some circles as attacking the pastor uh, or in, in certain other circumstances. Simply asking the question, well, how could you say this when you took this previous stand over here is not seen as trying to get clarification or understanding, but it's seen as attacking. And because it's not very politically correct these days to attack people, we tend to shy away from it. Yet I would suggest it is imperative that we learn to ask questions uh, if we're going to gain knowledge. Now, question would naturally come, well, how do you do that? And it's like everything else. We practice. There's a really interesting way that you can do that. Uh, if you have a, a VHS tape recorder or a DVD tape player hooked up to your television set, tape about five or ten minutes of your evening news. It could be local news, could be the network news, uh, whatever. And watch the broadcast and then ask all the questions you can think about that come up from watching that broadcast. And it, it, in the beginning, it's very important just to focus on the question. Don't worry about the answers. We're just trying to learn how to question, uh, because that skill can actually lead us eventually to answers. But we've got to learn how to question first. And then once you've asked every question you can think of, go back and watch that little five or ten minute segment again and see if there's anything else that you notice in watching that broadcast that brings up an idea that that suggests a question, or maybe a question on one of your first questions. And keep going through that until you have exhausted every possible question about that particular uh, broadcast. And again, not so important to get the answers, but the questions can uh, guide our investigation and really help us to navigate the waters of figuring out what's true and what's not true. Uh, if you're like me, you're probably on a lot of junk mail lists. Uh, years ago, uh, well, in fact, you've probably gotten uh, a lot of mailings that promise if you will subscribe to this thing or take this newsletter or uh, send for this free kit, you will get rich. Now, an interesting question to ask is, if their method, their 
system, their whatever is so good, why are they offering it to me? Why aren't they just getting rid of themselves and retiring and doing whatever they want? And part of that is at least some of them are playing on our fantasies because they're very good at copywriting, uh, at ad copywriting, and they can paint a picture for us that just sounds so convincing and say things that make it sound like, you know, if you just sign up for this, you too can drive a Maserati and have a condo on the French Riviera and fly your own private helicopter and on and on and on. But you have to ask the critical questions. I got one once and I wish I had hung on to it because it was absolutely hilarious. It read kind of like this. Dear Mr. Taylor, I know that your life hasn't been going very well lately and that you've had to go through a lot of difficult trials and tribulations. But I have good news for you. Prosperity is just around the corner. Your life is about to turn up because things are coming together that are going to have a tremendous impact on your life. Blah, 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 blah. It went on for pages. And I thought, what is this? And I finally got through, and it turned out this woman that was writing this was uh, an astrology reader and that apparently all the stars and the planets were going to line up for me. But if I really wanted to get the maximum benefit out of this, I needed to send her $19.95, and she would uh, give me my personal reading on how I could uh, leverage all this fantastic stuff that was going to happen in the cosmos uh, to make my life better. And then at the bottom it said, send a check to this address, or if you have a Visa or MasterCard, check here and put your Visa and MasterCard number in. Now, I was reading this, and I stopped, and I thought, wait just a second. If you know so much about me, that you know that I've been going through hard times and difficult problems and all this stuff, and you know that stuff's going to turn around for me, how come you don't know whether I have a Visa or a MasterCard? I mean, after all, that's a whole lot simpler piece of information to know about me than what's going on in my personal life. So we've got to learn to ask questions. And some of those can lead to pretty fun answers when you start caring, you know, finding that some of these things that people put out uh, are really kind of made of tissue paper and, uh, uh, and fall apart fairly easily. There are some really powerful questions that you can ask uh, that have an enormous impact uh, on your life. And let's walk through just some of those. One of them is, why am I doing this? Whatever the this is. If you're involved in some activity that's not leading you to where you want to go, or it's taking up your time or bogging you down, sometimes it's worth it to step back and say, why am I doing this? This isn't even worthwhile to me. Or this is a complete waste of time. Um, I uh, once found myself in a situation where in junior high school, believe it or not, I had a teacher who... Uh, required us to use five by seven inch index cards for a particular project. And so I went dutifully to the school store and bought a whole pack of them, which is how they came. And I used, I think, about three of them in the course of this project. But I held on to those five by seven inch index cards all the way through junior high school, high school, college, getting married, moving to Boise, Idaho, then moving to Portland, Oregon, then moving back to Montlake Terrace, Washington, and then moving to Muckleteo, Washington, and then finally was getting ready to make a move to Monroe, Washington, and I'm going through all my stuff, and now by this time I'm in my 30s, and I'm looking at these cards that I was about to pack, and I thought, why am I doing this? It would cost me like a dollar to replace these if I ever had to, and I've been schlepping them around for like, you know, 15 or 20 years. This is nuts. So sometimes just asking ourselves, why am I doing something, can be enormously powerful. If you get caught in situations where people are telling you gossip, which is a very, very uh, destructive thing, uh, the Torah talks uh, a lot about Lashon Hara and, and its incredible destructive force. Sometimes it can be, uh, you can be caught in a situation where somebody starts spilling this stuff out to you and you don't really want to hear it. A really a powerful way to stop that really fast is to ask them, why are you telling me this? Uh, because that really can cause them to, you know, 
get an abrupt halt and wonder, gee, why am I telling these? Well, I thought you would want to know. No, I don't want to know anything about somebody else that I don't need to know. So why are you telling me this? It can be enormously powerful. If you're struggling with what to do next, Alan Lakin years ago wrote a book called How to Get Control of Your Time and Your Life. And he said when you're struggling around, you can do something called Ask Lakin's Question, which is, what is the best use of my time right now? We only have a limited amount of time. We need to use it as judiciously as we can. So what's the best use uh, of that time? Here's a very interesting question. Why do we tell our children lies? Um, no, particularly knowing that they'll find out later that it's a lie. And someone might ask, well, gee, I wouldn't do that to my kid. And yet we look around, and first there's Santa Claus, you know, jolly fat man in a red suit, flies around on uh, reindeer through the sky, drops down through chimneys, and leaves me presents. I mean, that's pretty bizarre when you think about it. Why would I tell my child that? And people say, oh, it's cute, it's fun. It's a lie. It's not true. And what is the benefit to the child of that? Similarly, what about the tooth fairy? Uh, or the Easter bunny? Uh, or those kinds of things. As an interesting aside question, uh, is anyone on this on this call familiar with where the image of the jolly fat man in the red suit came from. You know, we think of, of uh, Santa Claus at uh, holiday time, and he's a big, robust guy, long, flowing red beard, uh, in a red suit, very jolly, laughing. Anybody know where that came from? To the best of my knowledge, based on the research that I've done, okay, I'll all wait for just a second. And, uh, see. Very good. Thank you. It was an image invented by Coca-Cola for advertising purposes. And yet look at how it's caught on and it's now so tied to that holiday time that everybody thinks, well, that's part of the deal. And yet that was an advertising image developed by Coke, I think back in the early part of the 1900s, uh, to help sell soft drinks. Um, let's see, what else we got here? Oh, yes. If you find yourself in a difficult situation um, where something very unpleasant has happened to you, questions can change your entire attitude. They can shift your focus, and they're very powerful that way. So, for example, if um, uh, I was running a small business and my lead developer uh, just decided to quit, I could say, Woe is me, how am I ever going to survive? Or I could say, how can I use this particular uh, unpleasant situation or adversity or undesirable consequence or whatever it is to move me and my business to a higher level? And that gets me thinking about creative possibilities rather than focusing on, gee, woe is me and life is terrible and everything's going to fall apart. So questions are are a very, very powerful tool, not just in the study of Torah, but in finding truth and reality in every aspect of our lives. So before I go on, any question about questions? Okay, let's move on. When I sat there in that class uh, with Rabbi Moskowitz and we talked about um, Proverbs 10, verse 1, and I will tell you that we spent the entire hour on that single verse, uh, and I learned a lot just from that. But he defined wisdom in a way that I had never heard before, and I distilled it down uh, into this very simple short sentence. Wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. Wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. So we are wise if we make decisions based on consequences rather than on our emotions. Because if you think about the way we make decisions, often they are emotionally based on the spur of the moment, based on what I'm feeling. I might get mad at somebody. I might yell at somebody. Uh, I might act rashly. I might you know, pound my 
my fist on the horn of my car at that guy that just pulled in front of me or whatever. But wisdom tells us that it's more important to look at the consequences of my action and act on the basis of that. I mean, to take an extreme case, maybe I don't want to blast my horn at that guy because maybe he's going to turn around and try to ram me. Or maybe I don't want to, uh, you know, jump all over um, that person who I think did something wrong to me because maybe I don't have all the facts. Uh, there are a lot of different things where consequences come up. And consequences are in the future while our emotions are in the present. Here's a quick quiz question. Can you tell me the age and sex demographic group that has the highest automobile insurance rates? What age and sex demographic group has the highest automobile insurance rates? Pat, teenagers, good. And, and in many companies, and uh, in insurance companies, um, and Terry and Lori, I see you're going to respond to, yep, thank you, 18 to 25. Boys, 18 to 25, yes. Single male drivers under the age of 25 have the highest automobile insurance rates. Why? Well, statistically, they have more accidents. But then we could go a step further and say, why do they have more accidents? And I would suggest to you that they have more accidents because they do not see and act on the basis of the potential consequences of their actions. When they pull up to the stoplight and their you know, rival from the Crosstown High School pulls up to the same stoplight and they look at each other and start revving their engines, you know, I'm going to find out whether my car is faster than yours. Neither one of them is probably thinking, what if a little child runs out halfway down the block, you know, and we're doing 55 and a 25 and we can't stop in time. Or if I try to race through that red light because, gee, I'm in a real hurry, uh, what the consequences might be of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, Terry and Lori, it's testosterone for sure. Um, but they're not thinking about the consequences of their actions. They're operating on the basis of that drive, those emotions uh, that are pushing them. Yet, uh, by the time, you know, a person hopefully gets to be 35, 40, 45, they've learned to control that, and they are looking more at the consequences, which is probably why, generally speaking, older people are wiser than younger people, because they tend to think uh, on the basis of those consequences. So there are a number of ways to utilize this. First, in our own lives, uh, you know, we need to stop and ask ourselves before we undertake a particular course of action, what is the consequence of this? I have had situations occur in my work, and I do a huge amount of my work by email, where someone will write me something, and for whatever reason, I find it irritating. And sometimes, you know, on an occasional basis, really, really irritating. So much so that I want to blast an email back to them. And then I stop myself and I say, now, wait a minute. What's going to happen if you do that? Well, that's going to create a bad relationship with that person, and you have to work with that person. And that email is going to be recorded in our email system and can be forwarded to 27,000 other people at the touch of a button. And no matter how you slice it, it's not going to turn out well if you erupt in a response email. So why don't you just get up, walk around your desk, go out, breathe some air, get a drink of water, and cool down and figure out how to deal with this situation so that you don't have a mess to clean up later. Um, and that can really help us avoid mistakes. I would suggest that this is also a great way to teach children. If we teach children on the basis of authority, in other words, you'll clean up your room because I told you to, we can get compliance, but the compliance only comes as long as the authority is around. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. But on the other hand, if I teach my children consequences, look, I need your room clean because if it isn't, first of all, it tracks dirt all around the house. Second, I can't go in to put clean clothes in your, in your room. Third, somebody comes in and slips on banana peels and loose wrappers and all the other stuff you got on the floor. Uh, that makes for a problem, and I'm financially liable, and all the other reasons. So, therefore, I need you to do that, and the consequence is 
that if you don't clean your room, you do not get to go out and play or whatever you decide it would be. And what I do is I get the child to understand the consequence in advance. In fact, I might even get the child's input on what the consequence ought to be. And I get them to repeat what the consequence is out loud. Then, when they don't clean up the room, then I just call on the consequence. And I'm, I can stay completely emotionally uninvested and let the consequences do their work. So, you know, what is the consequence you agreed to if the room wasn't clean? Oh, I don't get to go and play. Okay, that's the consequence. Um, I teach this to some of our firm's consultants about getting clear understanding with a client around the scope of a project because project scope tends to expand sometimes. And it's very important to get people clear at the outset on what that scope is so that uh, when the inevitable scope creep occurs, we can say, remember that clear dividing line we drew in the sand at the beginning? Well, we're now over it, so uh, let's talk about whether you want us to proceed and whether you want to pay extra for that or whether you want to uh, cut back that expansion. That takes more work to do when raising a child or in other circumstances than getting people to operate on blind authority, but it's worth it because then you can have the child grow up to be a thinker. And then when they get in situations on their own, they can go out and they will have learned to anticipate the consequences of their actions. Gee, all these guys are going out uh, drinking and driving. Hmm, there are some real negative consequences associated with that. I don't think I'll choose to go. Um, another interesting way to teach children this is to teach them uh, games like chess or the oriental game of Go, uh, which are logical strategy games. Uh, and they get a chance to see the consequences of their actions in a very controlled environment that doesn't harm them. Uh, so that's tool number two. Wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. Tool number three relates to this uh, because when we see consequences we can use that knowledge to begin to affect our emotions and that gets us to tool number three which is that the only way we make real behavior change is when an idea is clear to our mind only way we make real behavior change is when an idea is clear to our mind people don't jump off 50-story office buildings for the thrill because, unless they have a parachute, because the consequences are very clear to them. They know they are going to end up slapped on the concrete. And so it's very important to recognize that this is how we make change uh, in ourselves and others. In, in keeping laws, you can use the fear of punishment. In fact, you can get people to do stuff by you know, basically threatening them and not being, you know, hold a gun to their head or threaten to fire them if they're an employee or whatever. And that fear of punishment may work, but the problem with it is that it's external. And once that fear is removed, the behavior changes. So, for example, if you've got a, a teenage son whose dad says, now don't you throw any wild parties in my house, you know, or I'll be all over you like a dirty shirt, um, the child, the teenager, may not because they're afraid of the dad. But when dad and mom go away for the weekend, well, hey, open season. The authority is no longer here. The child doesn't have any inherent reason within him why he wouldn't throw a party, so he goes ahead and does it. Um, we've seen this happen, interestingly, uh, in certain social situations in our society. Uh, a number of you may remember quite a few years ago, there were electricity brownouts in New York. Uh, they ran out of electricity, and so uh, they just didn't have enough to keep the lights on. And what was interesting was that riots and looting broke out. And some of the looters were people who I think would normally have considered themselves uh, and would certainly put up, uh, I guess, the... the front of being law-abiding citizens. But when the lights go out and nobody can see, then it's like the parents are gone. And, well, there's no reason for me not to go steal that TV. Everybody else is doing it. Because the person doesn't have any inherent idea or understanding within them of 
um, why they shouldn't do that. So the fear of punishment only works uh, as long as the authority is around. And what we need to do is actually see the consequences of our behavior. Here's a, an interesting um, uh, example. If you could steal $10 million and it was absolutely certain that no one would ever find out, would you do it? Now, some might answer, well, I, I wouldn't do it because God would know and God would have stealing. Okay, and I accept that, but let's take God out of the equation for a minute because he's in an authority. Is there any other reason why I might choose not to steal even if I knew I could get away with it? Can anybody think of a reason? Why wouldn't I steal? It's an interesting question. Okay, Terry and Laurie, I see you wrote it's not right. Okay. But is there a benefit or a harm to me? Okay, Pam, I was reared not to. Okay. But if you look at it as simply, you know, I'm in a situation, okay, I got a chance to swipe $10 million, I'll never have to work again, might be able to give away a little bit of charity. What would be the harm to me, or would there be, in stealing that money? Conscience, okay. It would probably niggle at my conscience, depending on how strong my conscience is. I'd like to suggest a slightly different approach. Let's suppose that I can steal the $10 million and I can get away with it so no one ever finds out. I would submit to you that the worst thing that I could do is to do that. And here's why. Because what I've done when I do that is I have now reinforced in my mind an incorrect idea. And the incorrect idea is that I can sort of bend reality. In other words, you have to have laws of property and, and so forth in order to have a structured society. But what I'm saying is, well, that may work for everybody else, but I can get away with this and nothing will happen to me. And what happens if I get away with it? And think about a child now who steals gum, you know, or a small little thing, and they get away with it. That, to me, is the worst thing that could happen to them is that they get away with it. Because what they learn is, aha, I can steal them. There's no consequence. Now what happens next? Well, they try it again. And then they try it again, and they become, uh, and you're right, Pat, they become insensitive to others, and they think that they can get away with it more and more, so they move up to bigger stakes. And so on and so on until what they are doing is they are destroying their own ability to think clearly through an idea. And what this is is it's classic and leads to or can lead to megalomania. Take a look at Hitler. Hitler made some fairly clever moves early on. But as he got more and more successful, he became unrealistically confident and then began to make ridiculous moves, moves that we would call insane, and ended up losing the war. So even though we don't see it necessarily in every case, a thief, as an example, will often start small, take bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger chances to bigger and bigger things, even up to including murder, because after a point they'll probably get to a place where they can justify that one, and they will make such a large mistake that the consequences will be tremendous upon them. This is a rather interesting fail-safe device that seems it seems that Hashem built into the system of man that constantly causes society to self-correct. Because in general, the people who don't follow reality ultimately perish. So what will happen is maybe there's a real um, unfriendly government in place or a dictatorship or something that's terrible to the people. And then a bunch of people will rebel 
and they'll boot the dictator out and they'll take over. And they'll start out with altruistic motives and wanting to do the right thing. And then after a while, they kind of get in power and then, hey, they're running the show and they have their ideas about how things should be done and they start getting off track from reality. And when they get off track far enough and their, their errors become egregious enough, somebody else comes along and conquers them or takes them over and the thing kind of swings back to a little more middle ground. And society constantly moves back and forth that way. No terrible, horrible dictator has ever stayed in power perpetually, to the best of my knowledge, for generations and generations. Because when they get in that position, they end up making uh, thinking mistakes because they get involved in this megalomania idea and the idea that they're invincible or that nothing can happen or that they can do things that nobody else can do and, and all this kind of thinking. So uh, it becomes a, a system uh, that self-corrects. I would suggest to you that when we look at an idea, if we don't act on it, then it's not yet real to us. Uh, so the, the situation comes up sometimes about you know smoking. The, uh, the factual information seems to be pretty clear that smoking leads to some really uh, uncomfortable uh, medical conditions, and yet people still do it. And I would suggest that that probably occurs because the consequences of that behavior are not clear to their mind. Yeah, they might say, yeah, I know that happens to some other people, but the, the idea of them sitting in the oncology department and, you know, with an oxygen tank up, with emphysema coughing their lungs out, is not real to them because if it was real, they probably wouldn't smoke. Um, so we can sometimes look in, at our own actions and see, uh, you know, what is really real for us because if we're really acting on it, then it probably is. And if we're not acting on it, then probably we have some work to do in making that idea uh, clear to us. Um, the actions really then become the measuring stick for this. What's interesting is that a real idea can undo emotions. Uh, if you think about little kids, and then, you know, a number of us experienced this when we were small, uh, when, uh, when it was time to go to bed, uh, we were scared of monsters in the room. And, and you'll notice that the monsters are always under the bed. They're never, like, in the bed with me. They're always under the bed. Um, they're, they're where we can't see, uh, which is, interestingly, why fears come out at night. But if you turn on a light, which essentially represents reality, the monsters all disappear. And so when we see a real idea and go over it and over it and over it, that can undo an emotional cloud that may be preventing us from seeing reality clearly. Um, and that requires us to go over and over uh, those emotions or those, um, those real ideas until they're very clear to our mind. That leads us to tool number four, which is that we need to lead with our intellect. I would suggest to you that we have two things. We have our emotions and we have our intellect. And a key question in life is, which one are we going to use to make our decisions? And huge implications for our life hang out or fall out from that. Um, I would suggest that there is one thing in life that is going to protect you more than anything else it would be in virtually any area of life, uh, it would be knowledge. Our emotions, on the other hand, generally give us an incorrect perception of reality and thus can make us essentially ignorant, while ideas can make us uh, more objective. And Pat, you asked me to uh, repeat the statement. Uh, let me just go back. I'm not sure which one, but that we have our emotions and we have our intellect. So two things, and the key question is, which one are we going to use to make our decisions in life? And that there are huge implications for our lives that fall out from that. And if there is one thing in life that will protect you more than anything else in any area of life, I'm not just talking about tourist day, I'm talking about, you know, going to work every day, getting on an airplane, uh, making a stock investment, whether to buy this insurance policy or that one, how to raise your kids, whatever, it's knowledge. Uh, 
And our emotions generally give us an incorrect perception of reality. Uh, but the ideas can make us more objective. All that comes from being in our head, making intellectual analyses and decisions, not coming from our heart. That is not to suggest that we shouldn't feel or be compassionate. But we need to get our emotions to line up behind our intellect, not the other way around. And I would suggest to you that the other way around is very much the way our society tends to think and promote these days. You know, you've got to go with your heart and go with what feels right. I would suggest you do not want to go with what feels right. You can't necessarily trust those feelings. Um, it's got to be an analysis uh, of the situation. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, people go buy lotto tickets. Okay, Now, the lottos vary all over the place, but one that I recall hearing about, if my memory is serving me correctly, uh, was the Washington State Lottery a number of years ago, and it was a radio ad. And the tickets are a dollar, and the payout was a million dollars. And then in the, you know, the quick stuff at the end, uh, my recollection is they said odds of winning, winning one in 38 million. Now, I, I'm a, I have a mathematical background uh, in probability and statistics. And you have to stop and say, wait a second, one dollar invested, payout if I'm chosen is a million dollars, and the chances of winning are 1 in 38 million. That means mathematically, on average, I would have to invest 38 million dollars in order to get an expected return of 1 million dollars. That is a horrible investment. A horrible investment. No one who, who really looked at the numbers closely would ever do that, but why do people buy lotto tickets? It's the fantasy. And, and our, the Washington State Lotto Commission, and I'm sure others do that too, they play on that. They put out ads trying to, to pull people into that. You'll be rich. And, of course, the idea is if I'm rich, that solves all my problems, you know, and, you know, I'll be able to drive whatever car I want, and I'll have everything anybody can want, and I won't have to work, and I can tell my boss where he can take his job and put it, and all this stuff that is a fantasy. But the reality is that's a terrible, terrible investment. And in life, we have to make decisions based on probabilities. And, and when we get to big decisions in life, there are almost always benefits and losses. Um, I mean, there are very few things that turn out perfect. For example, I mean, if I have a chance for a big job promotion, but I have to move to Atlanta and, and root my kids up and my family, should I do it? Well, maybe, maybe not. I'd have to look at a whole bunch of factors. There's no immediate answer. But all this comes from leading with our heads, not our parts. Um, and so this is interestingly the basis of cognitive therapy. Uh, the idea of seeing real ideas and dealing with your emotions that way. Um, and in reviewing ideas and particularly political and religious ideas, we have to be careful that we're not reading into it what we want to see, uh, but that we're, we're looking at what is actually there. Because sometimes we see things that we want to see uh, and not what, what truly exists. Uh, you've also no doubt seen people who pull verses of scripture out of context. Uh, one of my favorites that I love to hold up for people that want to do that is Psalms 137.9, which says, Praises to him who will clutch and dash your infants against the rock. So do we say that scripture supports child abuse? I mean, heaven forbid. We, we have to go in and understand, well, what is that really saying? What's the context? Uh, and, and we've got to be very wary of people who will take information and twist it and distort it. That's why it's so very important to train the mind to think correctly uh, and to not make mistakes. And I'd suggest to you that the Torah approach is that every aspect of life needs to be governed by thought and that we need to think through things. Okay, I see we're like one minute away from... Uh, the end of our time. I uh, just want to pause before we stop and ask if there are any questions. And if not, thank you all for joining today, and I'll look forward to uh, talking with you next week. I have uh, five more tools to share with you, uh, and uh, we'll reconvene at this same time uh, next Sunday evening. In the meantime, everyone have a great week, and thank you so much for joining.
Well, I hope everybody can hear me. Uh, great class, Doug, as usual. Uh, 